welcome to the Mech Commander Review Circuit Podcast, Loremaster Edition. If you've not heard of the MRC before, we are a multinational, international, global, widespread, we'll say, uh, Battletech community using a standardized scoring system for classic Battletech, both in person and on Mega Mech, and Alpha Strike. We are a growing community of both veteran and beginner players alike, with a strong focus on accessibility and personal improvement for the game. Come check us out at mrcbattletech.com and join our Discord server if you're interested in finding a Mega Mech game, talking all things Battletech, and honing your skills with monthly Mega Mech events or in-person events at one of our physical hubs. Tonight's episode kicks off our Lore Master series where we're going to dive into all things the Draconis Combine, aka House Karita, aka the Dragon, you know, Space Samurai. Our hosts tonight are... I'm Chris, call sign Jesty. I'm Rick, call sign Nitro. And I'm Tom, call sign Pirate. And I'm Jeff, call sign Tweezer. So we're going to be covering an overview of in-universe faction history, some events and important characters, commonly used mechs, weapons and tactics that you're likely to run into uh, when you're playing this faction or going up against it, some notable in-universe units, and paint schemes for your hobby. So we hope you enjoy it. Now let's dive right in. So... First off, we're going to talk about the Draconis Combine today, and the most important thing to remember about them is this is Space Japan from the 80s. So you can look at this in terms of they've got the feudal systems, they've got the high-tech technology, they've got the honor system, but you know where does it all really start? We know that they've got Panthers and Jenners and that they're the Samurais, but let's take a look at how they actually got started. So. Shiro Kurita. He was born on New Samarkand, which is almost all the way out in the periphery. It's pretty far out there. Um, he was a commoner who basically got told, you're going to be a samurai and you're going to like it whether you like it or not. So he grew up, went through uh, several stages of uh, governorship with promotions, working hard, intuition of being strong like the dragon. I think at one point he even got told he is the dragon and he was instrumental in securing his planet's independence along with a neighboring planet called Galadon 5. They were having some issues with this uh, group called the Ozawa Mercantile Guild and there was just a lot of instability in the region but Shiro and the Galadon 5 alliance he created Put these mercantile guilds out of uh, out of business. They're basically thugs like the mafia. So they, um, you know, secured that neighboring region of space, and Shiro started going. You know what? Kind of like being strong. Kind of like this whole alliance thing. I'm gonna start taking over some planets. Um, he started expanding its neighboring system, sometimes with protection, sometimes by force. Uh, and this is back when there was no mechs. Remember. Uh, he mostly did all of this with tanks and infantry. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think they got the first mech for quite a while. Um, but you know he's doing all of this in a relatively poor backwater section. Eventually, he expands to the point that uh, he's only got a few options. The Terran hegemony has just started, so he can't really move closer to Terra. He can't really move towards the Fedcoms. They're, um, you know, the Fed Sons. They're just way too powerful to his south. The Tamar Pact and the Principality of Rasselhog, they're both strong and existing in this era. They're pushing back against him. So he starts expanding towards this region called the Draconis Rift. Name might sound familiar because that's where the name Draconis Combine comes from. Most important thing about it is it's a bunch of dead and dying red and orange uh, stars. Very terrible for the jump sails to recharge. It was a natural speed bump. And if you actually look on the map of the inner sphere to the top right of the Draconis Combine, you'll see a bunch of uninhabited planets. It's just because there's really nothing there. Um, but he stopped expanding there. He basically said, I'm going to take over the northeast quadrant. If I can't be as big as the Terran hegemony, I'm going to be the next biggest thing. And he started his power base to, um, you know, control that area of space and try to rival all the other great houses. Yeah, so he was in the 2200s to 2300s, late 2200s. Uh, so this is 
way before Star League. This is barely at the rise of the Terran hegemony, just after the Terran Alliance uh, kind of collapsed on itself and McKenna took over. I know, and I love it because, you know, later we start hearing about, you know, the Rasselhag Dominion or the Free Rasselhag Republic and the Tamar Pax, but you never really think that the Draconis Combine at one point is just two planets, period. Way out in the periphery. This is weird early proto space exploration uh, levels. So it's, it's really neat to see that it was this early on. So after, you know, several years of building up his uh, great house, starting on military campaigns and rubbing elbows with his neighbors, eventually um, they start developing their own culture. They're very traditionalists, back to Shiro Kurita. They're always talking about traditionalism, samurai strong um this also brings in basically the sengoku era of japan where you've got the shogun house karita you've got all the warring factions there's several dynasties and essentially like the other great houses they all do succession by murder so everybody is going in annihilating each other's uh you know cousins families descendants and uh, even though House Karita is very strong, it does shift a couple of times to other noble families in this early section. But House Karita pretty much plays a prominent part in all of it. But my point is that you start developing these local feudal warlords. So unlike, say, uh, the Terran hegemony, where there's a very strong centralized power and everyone is focusing towards that, a lot of the Draconis Combine is still very much ruled independent by these local warlords just because it's hard to travel around in this area. That all comes to a head, though, when the Star League uh, eventually goes into the Ameris Civil War, which is a whole other topic we could spend hours and hours and hours talking on. But short version, Civil War happens, Kerensky exits through uh, the Draconis Combine on his way to the Exodus Road, and there's a vacancy, and this is a good 500 years after Shiro. But with a vacancy for First Lord, everyone stands around saying, he's going to do it? Well, of course, it's going to be the honor-bound uh, samurai saying, you know what, I'm going to do that. So, um, was it Maruhito? Got to look him up again. But the uh, Cretan Lord at the time, he said, you know what, uh, I'm First Lord. That kicks off the succession wars. So if you really want to blame somebody for the succession wars, it was a powder keg already, but blame the guy who really wanted the job. So what I'm really hearing here is basically this is Game of Thrones with lots and lots of guns and tanks. Oh, for sure. I mean, everybody's in the back alley doing little whispers and back end deals. Everyone's getting stabbed. I mean, I tried to look through and figure out a family tree or something of the lineage from the start to the Star League. They're, it's just crazy. It looks like someone playing tic-tac-toe, just putting X's over, you know, all these uh, family members. Yep, and we are going to find that this is very common throughout all of the other factions that are growing up around this time. This is the best part about being a pirate is it's just, you know, the strongest survives. You don't have to worry about getting backstabbed because you're anticipating it. But anyway. So what happens from there? So succession wars, there's a whole range of things we could cover there on the early succession wars of trying to bully the Steiners over in the Lyran Commonwealth bullying the Fed Sons down south, trying to pick as much as they can off the Terran hegemony. A lot of back and forth without a lot of progress. Of course, this is also when things become lost tech. Horrible wars, nukes, obliteration of technology. The bigger point is that all starts to end when Theodore Kurita comes to play. So Hans Davion, I've heard him called the Mary Sue, you know, he's well-written, but he's also a good guy. Theodore Carita is... No, yeah, I see that. But Theodore Carita... Is he, though? Is he really? He's a good guy in all of the publications that he has released. Who conquered a nation for his bride as a wedding present. 
He, yes, yeah. and liberated for his wife. Uh, to, to, to be fair, that was more of a personal vendetta because the Capellans cloned him and then uh, tried to replace him with a clone. So oh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying there's not reasons, but anyways, we are starting to uh, chase our first squirrel here. Oh, the, you know, squirrels are fun uh, to chase down, but this is this all gets into. That's not even the first time I've heard of cloning or body doubling in any of the lore. So I'm sure there's something uh, that I'll uncover one day reading more about the Drax. But anyway, Theodore Carita, he's the good guy Drac. Um, I'm not sure when Kentaro's happens. We're going to overlook that. But Theodore Carita, he's the one that said, you know what? I want to be the new modern age um, ruler of the Inner Sphere. I don't want to be a traditionalist, which was a problem because his father was very much a traditionalist. And when he was Kanji, was it Kanji Gunrei? I uh, can't do the Japanese title system they have, but Kanri, yeah, Kanri Gunrei. So um, when he was second to his father they had a lot of struggles um trying to overcome um military tactics ways of leading the people but uh theodore is the one that came in and said you know what we're going to stop a few things this whole war we're doing with the, the lirans over the rasselhaig military district can't afford it you know it's our land can't afford it we're going to give it as independence it's also going to cheese off the Lyrans because they're giving away a bunch of land that they conquered at great expense. And also Comstar is giving us a bunch of military aid. But um, that was a good move uh, because then he's got one flank secured. He's got some new technology, some new allies with the people basically running the Hyperpulse generator systems. Um, so then he starts looking down south and he can start doing his wars with the Fed Suns relatively unimpeded. But that comes at a cost. Whenever you go from, you know, again, back to Samurai, honor bounds, I've got sworn oaths, you have things like the Ronin War coming in, which I believe is where they couldn't really accept the Rasselhaig Republic existing, so they decided to jump in and start going against Theodore's work there. Uh, but one thing that is important to note is he was the reformer. He was bringing everything into modernization. Um, and he really made the Draconis Combine a modern state rather than a, you know, just eternally backwards like the Capellans. But then that eventually seg oh, that eventually segues into issues with reforming like the Black Dragon Society. Or otherwise known as the Kokiru Kai. So why don't you tell me a little more about that because i kind of skipped the whole succession war part when i was playing the video games and started in civil war era <laughs> who didn't No, the it, it's they're interesting to say the least, um, because as soon as he enacted these reforms, as soon as he did, started going down this path, um, the Black Dragon Society forms. But Theodore goes down this path basically of reform, um, moving away from traditional things and traditional culture, and. What forms is basically this hardline group that's basically opposed to everything he's doing, his reforms, his way of doing things, his whole entire uh, government that he set up. And their goal essentially was basically to get rid of him and everything he's done and return the combine back to traditional ways, quote unquote, that existed throughout the years before 3030 or approximately somewhere around that line. Um, and it just, and, and funny because they play a pivotal role throughout the entire history, the entire lore of the Draconis Combine, 
more in the shadows at first and then they don't really reach which we can touch on later but they don't really reach their pinnacle until the 3060s which is a real turning point for them as a group affecting change in the combine but um now picking up a little bit more where uh, where we left off uh, pirate the Razohaig Republic is formed um, there are benefits to it of course as well something I wanted to add was he probably saw it as this cordon in between himself and the Lyran side of the Commonwealth of the Federated Commonwealth so it's kind of like a buffer for the Draconis which pretty much goes hand in hand with what you mentioned now he can focus all his attention down south and to the core systems pretty much would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Because if he doesn't have to worry about Steiner raids, he can focus on the other Anglo-German-French faction. <laughs> Which I'm sure this won't come to bite him in the ass later. Oh. Oh, yeah, no. Let's just focus all of our military assets in one specific direction. Nothing could ever possibly go wrong. Which turns into the one of the biggest times that has been touched on across all the books, source books, everything. And it's the clan invasion. And as soon as the clan invasion happens, I mean, the Free Razalheg Republic gets gobbled up, sure. But then right next to them is the Draconis Combine. And exactly what was mentioned a moment ago, where were, where were all the forces? Where was all the military units? Oh, that's right spread out a little bit more towards the south and the coreward side of things everything left at the top was not exactly the best not like it really mattered facing off against the clans but still it could have made a difference well what are they going to do with all of that the oberon confederation is going to gobble them up yeah well, pretty much no and um from there, I'm just going to spitfire a few things because it's just the clan invasion is just so large and so huge uh, of an era to cover. So I'm I'm going to, if I can even do this, I'm going to minimize it to three particular points. Um, the smoke dags pretty much gobbled up a huge swath of worlds from the Draconis Combine. And there was a particular point where the, uh, I believe the world of Turtle Bay, was it? The city of Edo in particular on Turtle Bay was orbital, orbitally bombarded by the smoke jacks. That was a turning point because it just galvanized the combine even more in their resistance against the clans. Which leads to my second point of the world of Wolcott. Now on Wolcott, we have Hohiro Kurita, uh, I don't remember exactly the unit, something for our viewers to look up, uh, was leading uh, his unit there against the Smoke Jags. And in the end, it was basically the first time IS forces had ever won against clan forces. Very deception and sleight of hand, but a win's a win. A win's a win, exactly. And exactly. while not necessarily canonical, anybody that got to play Mech Warrior 2 Mercenaries remembers this mission very well. Yes. Yes, indeed. And all is fair in love and war. You know what they say. And that comes in the third point, which was um, basically a precursor of what was to come with the Battle of Tukid. It was the Battle of Luthien. Basically, the Nova Cats and the clans and the Smoke Jags go at it in Luthien, the capital world of the Draconis Combine, trying to invade it, trying to cut off the dragon's head, if you will, where a coalition of all these uh, damaged and also uh, pristine new units got together alongside Wolf's Dragoons and the Kelhounds, and if I'm not mistaken, was it the uh, the Crimson Hawks as well? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, There's probably a half dozen Merc units in there, or more, but wait, no, it's Drax. They don't like Mercs. They, they don't like Mercs and, at all. Yeah, it's the Crescent Hawks company, part of the Kelhounds. Crescent Hawks, yes, yes. 
and but most notably the dragoons and the Kelhounds, sent by Hans Davian himself. So we are seeing a little bit of good faith here from two sides that normally would be enemies, and there's animosity up to Wooza. And eventually the Battle of Luthien is turned into another win. IS forces are able to prevail against all clan forces and they run their tail behind their legs. But yeah, yeah, it was definitely three very significant turning points throughout the clan invasion that um, are worth definitely noting. One, uh, one thing I've been thinking about, but uh, on the bombardment of Edo, that from aliens from beyond the stars back to Japan, because I'm learning Japanese at the moment, so I'm totally not a weeb. But um, <laughs> one thing that you could also notice is parallels to history where uh, Commodore Perry going in with his gunships to Edo and basically threatening to blow the place sky high. I'm going to have to go look in the lore now to see if there's somebody named Perry on the clan side oh. doing all of this. There's a, there's a foreshadowing of an Easter egg, so anybody that wants to try and find that, let's do it. <laughs> I wonder if you're also going to find out that one of the ships that was doing the bombardment is, is something in Perry's fleet. Oh, absolutely, I'm sure. And I mean, this all has rings of the Meiji Restoration before that, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, and um, from there... I'll leapfrog a little bit into Operation Bulldog. Clan invasion was eventually stopped in Tukid. We all know this. Um, or there was a this uh, this line, hard line across the inner sphere, that was basically set that they couldn't cross over to. It kind of delayed them, and that is where they're able to recoup a bit of quite a bit of tech, recoup their losses, slowly recover and enter um when the sldf is formed uh some proposals that were made two of which were operation serpent and operation bulldog now operation serpent we all know that will head out through combined space through the same path that Kerensky Kerensky took uh on his exodus to lead to the clan home worlds now operation bulldog that one was going to be centered around uh clan invaded space <laughs> very similar very close they take a lot of uh inspiration from the past i like that i like that a lot so the, the easter egg there is i just had to look it was coming across commodore perry versus commodore perry versus commodore perry oh it was galaxy commander uh cordera perez yeah they just gave him the hispanic brush so Op Bulldog tends to focus on clan invaded space. And the whole goal, the very basic idea is kicking Smoke Jaguar out of the inner sphere permanently. And a lot of DCMS units took part in this because a lot of what the Smoke Jags basically gobbled up was DC space. So a lot of DCMS units take part um, and they excel at it. A lot of actually cool variants are invented after, throughout uh, Operation Bulldog. Uh, the R variants for quite a few battle mechs. But this leads to a different period. Operation Bulldog starts, a lot of the CMS units take uh, part. The Alshane Avengers are acquit themselves within Operation Bulldog quite well. Uh, but they didn't want to stop at just the Smoke Jags. We're talking about units that were from the Alshane district, which was gobbled up wholeheartedly. And these were fanatical and prideful units. So when the district was lost, they wanted blood. And they got it. And they got a chance in our Bulldog, and which was a major success overall. But then they didn't want to stop there. They wanted a piece of the uh, Ghost Bears as well. The Avengers, they were held off from pursuing punishment on the Ghost Bears, though. 
but the, ent then entered the Black Dragon Society. They wanted to hurt Theodore's efforts, so they baited the Avengers into attacking Ghost Bear in order to free their district worlds. This pretty much galvanized them, and they went at it. Eventually, this led into the combined Dominion War of 3062, reaching all the way into 3063. The Dominion War, the combined Dominion War, lasted only a year. Unfortunately, they were not successful, and this led to the Ghost Bears just gobbling up more worlds, basically replacing with the Smoke, the smoke Jaguars. Going a bit further into the timeline, we can touch on the Jihad and the Republic. This is where the Black Dragon Society pretty much shines. Uh, a lot of shadow maneuvers in the back, assassinations, so on and so forth. And the, when the Jihad actually happens, that is when the Black Dragon Society takes, uh, takes note of this, takes advantage, and they themselves act. A uh, very good example is a second battle of Luthien, where the second Sword of Light, which had a lot of Black Dragon members, almost two-thirds to almost full, they rebelled. And they actually took over Unity Palace, the capital. The Loyalist forces were forced to withdraw into a guerrilla state, and then comes Word of Blake, and lands on the planet as well, making for an interesting three-way fight. The capital is then moved to New Samarkand. General Order 9 was issued, and that's when they had to... Basically, that means that they're moving their capital world somewhere else in order to ensure the safety and the continuation of the dragon. Uh, the sector and world of Dieron was also affected heavily during the Jihad. This is where Hohiro Kurita was also trying to break the Word of Blake siege and he took an active part in that fighting. Unfortunately, his Daishi was legged, quite literally legged, and that he was captured and put into a re-education camp. Later on, he's able to come out. They save him and everything, but he's affected. He's definitely uh, emotionally and affected. After the Jihad, basically the combine goes into the, like this stasis mode, if you will. They're just recovering, licking their woods, wounds. Word of Blake took a toll, a huge toll. Uh, the Black Dragon Society took a huge toll. They were purging their ranks and everything, trying to take the rot out, but that takes time. And there's not much that they do right after the Jihad. Leading up to the Dark Age, though, throughout the Republic years, um, once the Republic falls, they basically launch an invasion of it once it stops becoming uh, relevant. Um, however, through some surgical assassinations here and there, they are able to replace the entire Karita line when in, with an illegitimate Karita line. Wait, what? An illegitimate Karita line? Where did that come so, from? So Theodore had an illegitimate, illegitimate son on the side. When certain assassinations happened, wink, wink, the illegitimate line took over. Oh, so like a branch family... Uh, basically I'm, i don't want to get too much into the details into the all the names and everything like that but let's just say that the legitimate line was completely assassinated minus two and the illegitimate line took over immediately as coordinator uh her name was yori karita later on that leads into a clan novacat rebellion which tries to do two things, install the legitimate line again with the two surviving members, and they wanted to get their independence from the Combine. That unfortunately failed, and the two legitimate members, uh, seeing how everything was going, decided to commit seppuku via poison. And the Clan Novacats were completely and utterly destroyed. That's what leads up to the Dark Age and from the Dark Age over to the Ill Clan era. They, I know that also the Combine under Yuri Kurita is able to conquer and swallow up quite a bit of uh, Fed Sun's territory. And they even get as far as the capital. They conquer the capital, New Avalon. So that, that's very interesting stuff right there. That hit me in the gut a little bit. I was like, oof. 
the hit you in the gut, I thought you'd get real excited about that. Yeah, Mr. Jacona's Combine supporter. It got me excited to know what the F happened. And that's, uh, what's that all in? Dominions Divided? I believe so. I'm not entirely sure. There might be a couple stories with that too, but to continue that story, I think, uh, I think you need to really start picking up those books. And that'd be a lot of spoilers involved, but there's a lot of things that go on with, uh, what's his name? Matsuhari Toranaga and uh, the fall of New Avalon. And I think yeah. to continue that story, we're going to have to wait for Catalyst to put out more more lore for us. Yes. Uh, there we go. We want more shrapnel stories set in the Oak Land. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. The Oak Land, in, you know, I live in the new era. I'm a newer player. I mean, I, the clan invasion's great. Uh, Jihad's great. All that other stuff is awesome. I want new stuff. <laughs> I don't want to go back and read books that are 30 years old. I've already done it. Now we can go ahead and get into the actual battle maps. Some of the things that define House Karita. Uh, one thing to note, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the, the Draconis Combine, the, com the Draconis Rift, is very resource poor uh, as a rule. But for some reason, they tend to have the materials to make PPCs on the regular. So you'll notice a lot of K variants, which stands for Karita, is the designator for a lot of mechs. So if you see a Wolverine, 6-K or whatever, more than likely it's a Karita domestic variant. And they get around. You'll see them in other factions like Fed Sons or the Commonwealth. Uh, they, the K variants and other faction-specific variants do tend to blend uh, through salvage all things are possible. You'll see things like the Catapult K series, the K1 and K2 that have a PPC instead of those LRM launchers. That's very common among Karita battle mechs and units in general. In fact, the very first Karitan warship was a destroyer that had, I think, two to four naval PPCs uh, as their primary weapons, whereas most other destroyers and other warships at that time focused on naval lasers and naval autocannons. Uh, they were very PPC heavy across the board. In this late succession wars and in the Renaissance era, you see PPCs as like their signature weapon. The Panther, which they fielded in uh, companies worth uh, in the Warrior Trilogy are a PPC and an SRM-6. There's a lot of PPCs. I'd say one thing that you could probably think about, because a lot of periphery lore has this as well, ammunition means you need a resource and supply lines. If you've got crap resources, having energy-based weapons means you need shorter supply lines, so maybe that's why. I haven't read into that, but I know lasers are super popular for pirates for that reason might be the same thing with PPCs compared to those rich boy fed sons. Plus, who doesn't like throwing man-made lightning downrange? I mean, literal sword of light, <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. And uh, as we move along the eras, getting out of the succession wars toward the clan invasion, after we get the Hell Memory Cortex, uh, the Cretans start developing C3. Uh, that's one of the first things that really stands out as one of their primary faction technologies, if if there is such a thing, which there really isn't. Uh, there's a lot of crossover between all the factions, the mechs and stuff they have. Uh, they start making things like the Hatamoto Chi, uh, the Nodachi, and a lot of the more uh, Japanese-inspired armor styles. You'll see a lot of mechs with swords, like we said, the Nodachi earlier. There's a spider variant that's got a sword, which I'm pretty sure is a K variant. Uh, I think it's the K small R, not big R. But uh, you notice there's a theme with a lot of their mechs. Swords and speed. I mean, even the Warhammer that Yorinaga Karita was piloting had dual PPCs. I mean, it's a recurring theme throughout their history. Yeah, so one of the things that you also are going to notice is a lot of the K variants don't have jump jets. Uh, that was something that they tended to take off in favor of more armor and more PPCs. Uh, so those are always really interesting to run across. Um, but so, Jesty, other than the Panther, and I think you said the Jenner, are there any other just really heavy Karita-focused mechs that are, are solely deployed by that unit? 
Uh, in the earlier area, eras, the Jenner is another one that stands out as a very common Korean mech, like in the Succession Wars and early clan invasion. The Jenner stands out. Uh, like I said earlier, the Catapult K variants stand out. And I'm pretty sure that there's a heavy two that I'm not thinking. The Nodachi, there you go. Nodachi stands out as one of their faction-specific mechs that's fairly common throughout the area. Of, and of course, I mean, there's one that's named after the entire faction, naturally speaking, the Dragon, which is such a terrible mech in my opinion, but I tend to try not to think about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, just to cheese off Draconis players, the next one I paint up is going to be in Lyran colors. Yeah, another one in the early areas is the Charger. Uh, they had a lot of surplus of them, if I remember correctly. Uh, they bought them from the manufacturer dirt cheap, because uh, I think nobody else really wanted them. And the, the, they don't really have the manufacturing capabilities, so they're taking everything that they can get. Yeah, they were looking for any battle mech. I'll take that. What is it? A Charger? Sure. Fine. Yeah. How many do you got? <laughs> and then they turn all those chargers and put samurai armor on them and slap a couple of PPCs and wait, where did this Hatamoto come from? <gasps> exactly. That's you can see the evolution of the mechs. Uh, like they favor the charger, it evolves into Hatamoto. Uh, they favor the Panther, it evolves into stuff like the Owens later on because uh, it's fast and it it's heavily invested in C three. I think every variant of the Owens has C three once they get into making their own army mechs. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to say that basically whatever the latest season of Power Rangers Megazord is the latest Korean mech, but it does seem to follow that trend. Yeah, and their aesthetics are very samurai for their own ingrown mechs. Going on to the future eras like Civil War and Jihad, like you start to see more and more of this samurai theme coming up in the designs. More and more swords mixed with TSM that run up on you like... Uh, Nitro's very, very dangerous Nodachi, uh, which he's piloted to great success many times as a Draconis Combine player. Uh, the Panther keeps getting upgraded with newer PPCs, better heat sinks. Uh, the Dragon gets, you know, the Grand Dragon and the Naginata, the Akuma. Any, basically any Japanese sounding mech name has to come from the Draconis Combine. I mean, th no one else is making these Japanese sounding mech names. So anytime you see something like Automoto, Naginata, Akuma, anything that sounds Japanese, there's a 90% chance it came from the continent. Well, you also got the same with uh, the clans that invaded. Stuff like the Hellbringer was the Loki, because that's very Germanic. Okay, they were hitting the Lyrans, but the Daishi, the Great Death, yeah, that's probably one that hit the Combine first. Yes, very true. As well as the Nobori Nin, which is the Huntsman. That was a very common uh, smoke jaguar mech, if I'm not mistaken as well as Clan uh, Fox, but they're not that. Also, after we get into the later eras, MRMs, which are medium-range missile launchers, are one of the staple products that the Draconis Combine slaps on their mechs. They're one of, in my opinion, the worst weapons in the game, but they do crop up a lot in a lot of their battle mech designs for whatever reason. I guess... They liked them for some reason. Maybe the amount of firepower they can throw down range, even though it's inaccurate as all hell. Uh, they also made Omnimex like the Black Hawk coup. That's a Korean design. As you can tell, it's got a K in the name. There's the Daikyu, which is also a Korean design. I mean, the, the, the list just goes on and on. They have, I'm, I'm, pro I'm pretty sure they have one of the most unique MULs when it comes to the major Intersphere factions. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. I think the only one that could rival them is the Capellans with all the stealth crap they start doing. Yeah. Yeah, but even then, a lot of them are variants of existing mechs. They don't make their own chassis for the most part. They do have some, but not to the extent that they're no, Luthien Armor Works pumps out like a beast, and also the Fourth Succession War happened. So, yeah, no, the Capellans aren't rivaling them anytime soon. Yeah. Oh, also the Massacari, more than likely, named Smoke because it was a Smoke Jaguar staple. Exactly. And the list just goes on and on. the The Japanese influence is very heavy on their mech naming conventions. And on top of that, it's very heavy on their battleship naming conventions, fighter naming conventions. There's the samurai fighter, 
uh, and it, it's just a consistent theme uh, throughout all of their Draconis Combine Mustard Soldier units. So, is there any other units or weapon systems or equipment that you guys think stands out as a Draconis Combine staple that we haven't touched on? Like, some those PPCs. It's just another variant of the PPC, which you tend to find on a lot of Draconis Combine variants. Um, I will say, though, ballistic reinforced armor because they got tired of the autocannons from down south <laughs> shooting their general direction so they had to come up with ballistic reinforced armor as a way of you know shrugging off some of that ac20 yeah and that makes perfect sense as you see the development of the draconis combine mechs one of the people they war with the most is the federated sons what's the federated sons preferred weapon daka daka any autocannon of any size so, so and funnily enough, the Davions are like, we're tired of these damn PPCs. I want to make reflective armor. Did they develop the blue shield that's on the Quasimodo? Uh, well, maybe Free World's League. Maybe I think that's Black a Free World's League product, yeah. But I'm sure they could export it to the Federated Suns for a hefty price. So, Jesse, there's an awful lot of mechs that seem to be native to Karedans. What kind of tactics can people expect from, from those that are going to be playing it by this faction? So, one of the most, uh, I'd say, Karitan tactics would be C3. Uh, you have some long-range master C3 in the back, and then you have something small and fast out in the front, or something nice and beefy out in front, like a Nodachi, that can take a little bit of damage and is a very, very high-threat mech, but you do not want closing in on. So, a lot of their tanks and, uh, and VTOLs also have C3. So you have a variety of options. They've also made the Commissori, which is a very small Omni tank, which just came out in the Ill Clan era. And it's got, there's a PPC version, I'm pretty sure, with the snub nose. There's, mm -hmm. there's a variety of these little tiny mechs, and I'm pretty sure there's one with the C3. So they inundate all uh, weight classes and uh, mech archetypes with a C3 system. And there's, I'm pretty sure they're one of the first uh, factions to start dealing with C3 boosting as well, which is still rare for the most part. I'm glad you mentioned that because I always thought C3 was Comstar for some reason. It started as Comstar. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Comstar invented C3, if I remember correctly. But when they started giving the Draconis Combine all that tech, oh, yeah. when yes. they gave up the Russell Hog District, they gave them extra stuff they weren't originally intending to give them mm -hmm. so they got their hands on a lot of uh, c3 stuff ahead of everybody else and they kind of uh, rolled with what they had basically comstar had that c3 improved c3i and then the Karedans saw that and they basically uh what is it reverse engineered it and they were able to come up with the master slave concept but still yeah most definitely yeah so i mean that's pretty much the most unique thing you can expect to see coming out of a Jaconis Combine player. There's other things like the Charge of the Horde, which they're known for because they have a lot of smaller mechs because they don't really have the industrial ways to make heavier mechs on a regular basis. But we're not going to get too far into the details. Right, so if you've got a lot of mechs, you need a lot of units and regiments to throw those mechs in. So some of the some of the units that are really common in the DCMS, uh, obviously they start with the district brigades. So all of the different military districts, Benjamin District, Galatin District, Pesh District, they all have numerous regiments that are assigned to them. So basically if you if you were a DCMS or if you were a DC citizen and you went to go sign up for the military and you lived on Pesh, you would end up in the Pesh Military District Regiment pool, basically. Um, so they they all stayed kind of at home. They were the the units that protected those specific areas. Think the National Guard, but you get to see a lot more action in in a lot of cases. <laughs> then you have some of the more elite brigades so these are the the best of the best units these are the units that get all the supplies 
Um, they get their choice of anyone across the entire nation. Uh, the best soldiers, usually they tend to have chips on their shoulder to say we are the best and we know it. Um, but these are also the, the forefront of they literally are the most elite things in the, the DCMS and can go toe to toe with just about anything else. So the core regiments that have always been there, the core brigades that have always been there have been the Sword of Lights. So these are the ultimate pinnacle through most of the DCMS history of where individual mech warriors or tankers or wherever want to get to because they are going to be the best of the best they're going to get the best equipment the best assignments um they they rotate between worlds so they are not necessarily tied to a specific theater of operations later as you get into the fourth succession war and uh, some of the new regiments are being raised you have units like the ryukin which is the uh, a series of regiments that were raised based off of the Wolf's Dragoons model. So when Wolf's Dragoons was working for the DCMS and they realized that this is probably not going to end very well, we want one of these for ourselves. Takashi Kurita had uh, a number of people actually create a unit based completely on that model that would be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Wolf's Dragoons. And if you really want to dig into more about what that unit uh, went through, I highly encourage you to go find the, the source book on Misery. There's also Wolves on the Border, which is the novel that goes yes. into detail for all that. I yes. highly recommend it. It's one of the only novels I've read so far. Minobu Tetsuhara is the man. Minobu Tetsuhara is a beast. I mean, he, he single-handedly puts that together, doesn't get a lot of credit for it. Um, and Jamie Wolf cheats and he still almost beats him. But go read the book to, to figure that out. Um, one of the other elite brigades that we wanted to touch on is the Genyosha, which up until I was researching for this, I always thought was pronounced Genyosha, uh, but apparently I've been pronouncing it wrong for 20 plus years. Uh, mm. This is the unit that was created by Yorinaga Kurita and uh, the third succession war that came back in the fourth succession war. So this is the storied unit that has uh, a lot of combat against the Kelhounds. So you think the, the Ryukin kind of pairs off against the Wolf's Dragoons, well, the Genyosha pairs off against the Kelhounds. And then they fight alongside of them once we get to the Battle of Luthien, and we're all kind of friends again. Uh, but the Genyosha is the, the ultimate uh, top tier. They tend to be the first ones to get clan tech. Uh, Hohiro Kurita is one of the uh, leaders in the unit as he's coming up. So those are some of the elite brigades. While there are others that are out there, these are the most well-known. Now you're talking a lot about the top, what about the bottom of the barrel. Ah, so yeah, there are there is a bottom of the barrel. And one of the things that's really interesting about the DCMS is they tend to create a lot of units out of the undesirables of their society so much more than a lot of the other uh a lot of the other nations in the battletech lore do and they were originally created primarily as expendable chain gang suicide units that have somehow managed to survive so the the original one of this is actually the legions of vega so this is where this is where army officers or, or DCMS officers went to, you know, just go off and to be put to pasture. Um, this is you piss someone off, you're going to get sentenced to the Legion of Vega and you're never coming back. Uh, and that had been viewed that way for quite a long time until Theodore Carita himself actually went to the Legion of Vega and started to turn around the reputation. And it eventually became a place where officers went to to be rehabilitated back into line duty. So Space Skaven got their armor back, or honor back. Pretty much, yes. Um, another unit that was originally formed out of what was literally the Chain Gang assaults was the Amphibian, Amphibian Light Assault Group. It would help if I could speak with this. But the, this was originally units that were sent in small forces in suicide assaults. They were designed to be suicide squads. They would go in, take a completely, uh, you know, a completely overly defended objective, blow it up with no hope of extraction. 
and they eventually started perfecting these rapid response, rapid assault tactics that grew into a multi-regiment formation, which eventually also developed another very good reputation as a, a fast response assault group. Yeah, so it sounds like they went from rags to riches, sort of, in this uh, evolution yeah. over time. Yeah, they did. And then there's one more really interesting unit that I haven't even touched on yet, and that is the proliferation of the ghost regiments. So one of the, the big pieces of Korean society is the existence of the Yakuza, or basically the, the Japanese Mafia. Uh, so these were all criminals. The, they are the seedy underbelly of society. When Theodore Kurita started making a lot of his reforms, he started recruiting these Yakuza into becoming uh, Buso Senshi. I think that's what they say, uh, actually into mech warriors and bringing them into line units. And all of these units got no supplies. They got absolute crap. Their mechs were basically walking dumpsters, but somehow they had the heart and the tactics to survive and thrive. So these units are still based on Yakuza roots, but have, have developed into a very formidable fighting force. So it's really interesting how Karita in particular has taken all of these undesirables and made them into a really strong fighting force. You know, one thing that I don't think we've really touched on is that a lot of this society is very honor-driven. So people will take the the most honorable route, like to reform themselves, redeem their family name and family honor by saying, okay, fine, I'll go to the Legion of Vega and prove my family honor and, clean, and cleanse my family's name of my whatever dishonor I brought upon them. So they have to do these dirty things in order, or undesirable things, in order to keep their family's honor intact uh, uh, they just commit seppuku yeah that's the easy way out for them usually it's like no 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 you don't get to get out that easy you're going to legion of vega they're like no let me commit seppuku i think probably the closest thing to that may be uh some davions with uh you know patriotism but i'm really struggling to think capellans you're not a citizen get out steiner do you have the money and the free world's league well they just like to bop around their own local spot you're right, there's not really a place for someone to do like the French Foreign Legion way of advancing. And the last section of units I want to talk about are brigades that are tied to specific worlds. So these are things like the Arcab Legions. Uh, so that was a, a unit that was formed when the, the, Ar the Azami, I think it was, uh, group was coerced into joining the Draconis Combine. Um, they were allowed to keep a lot of their own heritage in order, as long as they supplied troops to the to the Lord. Um, then you also have the the Proserpina Hussars, which are tied to the, the world of Proserpina, and eventually tied to the University there. Um, Anting Legions, uh, also tied to the world of Anting, and then you have things like the the Sunzang Cadres, which are of course tied to the major military academies there. So they do have a number of brigades that are tied like that as well. So on the whole, the, the DCMS, while they might not be the biggest military in successor states lore, they definitely had a very unique and flavorful uh, group of units that they could they could send out and that you could run into. And you could actually model your own force after, depending on what kind of atmosphere if you wanted to you know rpg this yourself you could you could find a very interesting group to play as oh yeah definitely and the draconis combine i've had one of the most one of the longest histories of having a warrior centric culture culture even going back before the sldf days uh they actually made the gunslinger program to deal with these draconis combine ronin who are such a pain in the ass because they were so good fighters, they had to train up their own soldiers to go toe-to-toe -to -toe and kill these Draconis Combine pilots in duels who were winning up until they started the Gunslinger program. So guys, we've talked a lot about the Draconis Combine for the, the past hour or so. We've talked a lot about the units, the people, the history, the events. But now everyone's like, okay, this sounds great. This is, this is what I want to play. So I go out and I buy my own little plastic miniatures and I want to go to the table and I'm like, I don't want them gray, so I need to paint them. So of course, what is the color that everyone thinks about when they think about the DCMS, or at least anyone that has spent more than five minutes in, in Battletech? 
Well, I think the uh, army painter kit that you can get um, will tell you straight up on the box. Yes, so the Draconis Combine and House Krita is synonymous with red. So most of the in-universe parade unit schemes, they, they fall on the warm spectrum of the palette. Uh, so when they're not utilizing camo, red is the predominant color. And it's usually followed by grays or tans or whites in some combination, some base, some highlights, things like that. Uh, if you look at other things, gold and black are very commonly used as accent colors for most of these units. But then if you kind of switch the, the color spectrum, outside of a couple of very specific units like the Anting Legion or the Night Stalkers, um, cool colors like blue and green are really rare as the primary colors, but they might be used sparingly a little bit as accent colors in the palette. Um, then if you go to other colors like orange and purple and yellow, these are basically non-existent within the, the in-lore color palette. So when you go and look at examples of what's out there, really one of the most common things you're going to see or the most common thing that someone is going to paint is going to be some version of the Sword of Light. Uh, so it's going to be a flat red base with metallics, relatively minimal offsetting trim, maybe some black, maybe it's going to be the the, the regimental emblem, uh, which is going to have a tiny bit of color on it, but that that's really it. That's what the Sword of Light is known for. Um, one of the more really intricate paint schemes for those of you that are really going to want to just drive your hobby to the limit is going to be the ghost regiments. So these these are really, really cool coming from a Yakuza background. All these mechs start with a, a very light gray base where it's almost white, but keeping with the Yakuza tradition of tattooing the body as a record of you know their personal honor, the warriors will actually decorate their mechs in a full uh, full torso, full body design that describes their personal warrior history. So it's really keeping with the, the Yakuza and the criminal origins of it. So I find that really interesting. It's it's kind of a, an interesting approach where you have that base color, but then all of the mechs are all going to be unique in whatever colors they use. Usually there's going to be some tie to a common color for a regiment, but it's going to be completely different designs based on each individual warrior's history. Dang, that sounds badass. It's going to be a hell of a lot of freehand for someone, and I would love to see really good versions of it. Uh, makes sense of why in uh, Mech Warrior 5, every so often, they'll have those white mechs with like the beautiful dragon tattooing all over it. Didn't realize that was probably where it was coming That's from. That's a ghost regiment. That will be a ghost regiment. So regardless of any of the official colors that we might talk about, we encourage you to paint your toy soldiers and your toy mechs any way you really like. There's a ton of resources out there like camo specs, the unit color compendium, social media. Go out there, look for examples and look for inspiration. We just want to see people come to the table with non-gray plastic. Um, so we're also going to be setting up a challenge in the MRC Discord for the, the, the next month in the Mech Factory channel for everyone to submit their combine related mechs and uh, the hosts here will kind of review those. We'll pick out some of our favorites and talk about them in the, the prologue for the next episode. Yes, definitely get those in as soon as you can. And we will add you to the MRC lore. Uh, well, not the lore, but you know what I mean? <laughs> You'll be part of the show. Uh, we'll call we'll give you a shout place out. place in MRC history. Correct. We'll give you guys a shout out and, pin the pictures up in the discord for everybody to see uh i know i tried doing the onting scheme because it's the old one of the only two or three blue units in all of jacona's combine and if it's not blue i'm not painting it well onting also has some cool lore history behind it but that's another story for another day yes yes it is speaking of another day i think that's just about gonna wrap it up for us this time around i think so uh hope everyone's had fun coming through this journey with us i've had a lot of fun learning things uh, as i've been trying to research on this so hopefully we can continue to do more of them and as we you know release this we'd love to get some feedback from everyone about what would you like to see next uh, obviously we're probably going to tackle the other major great houses but you know i think there's a lot of other factions out there that have not gotten a lot of love uh homeworld clans 
pirates. Oxamite provinces, Samoyotic new colonies. Yeah. Scorpion Empire, which I guess is kind of a homeworld clan, but not really. Uh, World's Alliance. Oh yeah, Raven Alliance yeah. now. We would love some feedback on what you all want to see next. Um, thank you for taking some time with us, and I hope you've really enjoyed this. And otherwise, go out there, join the MRC, get in some games, and... And we'll see you guys in Discord. Good night, everybody.